0: Welcome to the Central Baptist Church podcast. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Two weeks ago, we began a new series, and I'm calling this series The Story That Makes Sense of Our Stories. Here's the basic idea the basic concept is that we have all been born into the gigantic story of this universe. But then we start to grow up and we think, what is that story? We are all trying to make sense of it all and so really we're trying to come to grips with what is this story that we have found ourselves in. But as we have said in the last two weeks, one of the difficult things is that people have very different interpretations of what this gigantic story is and of all the parts within it. So what we're doing in this series is we're kind of comparing and we're contrasting various stories that people believe about the giant story of the universe and our place in it And the question that we're asking throughout the whole series is, what story makes the best sense of this gigantic story in which we find ourselves? To hear the Christian story, the Judeo-Christian story... What we're doing is we're going back to the first three chapters of Genesis. And this is perfect because quite literally, this is the reason why Genesis was written. Actually, Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, but specifically Genesis and more specifically Genesis 1-3, to this is the reason why it was written. The Bible claims that these words were inspired by God, that he revealed himself to us, that he came to explain this to us. He explained it to Israel. This book was written to the nation of Israel and by wider extension out to the world, and the whole purpose is to help us make sense of this gigantic story in which we've all found ourselves, in which we're all born. Of course, the book of Genesis wasn't written in live time, right? It's not, a, it's not a live tweeting of the events or something like that. No, it was written much later to help all of us to make sense of this gigantic story we found ourselves in. And so what we're doing is, each week we're looking at a particular part of this gigantic story that we find ourselves in, and we're asking, what story really makes the best sense of it as we compare the Judeo-Christian story with other stories, and we're kind of sticking to the most common stories that people within our culture today believe. Today, I want to look at which story makes the best sense of beauty, of beauty, so I'm going to talk about three things today, the question of beauty, the secular story of beauty, and the Judeo-Christian story of beauty. All right, so we've experienced it already a little bit this morning, and I'm praying this will come home to us in a fresh new way. Let's start off in the first place by simply talking about the question of beauty. I'm framing the whole thing here, the question of beauty. When I talk about beauty today, here's what I'm talking about. I am talking about that moment, it might have happened this last week, I think it was Monday, and you might have ran into your front room and you said to everybody who was there, to your family, for instance, quick, everyone, come outside, check out the sunset tonight. Did you see that? Everyone was posting about it on social media, did you come and see this sunset? And then you and your family and friends, whoever was there, you went outside and you just for 20 minutes, you just sat there and you looked at the sunset. You didn't accomplish anything for 20 minutes, but you didn't care. It's not about accomplishing anything, is it? It's about beholding beauty that fills your heart with so much joy and so much wonder that you're just like, wow, look at that. When I talk about beauty this morning, I am talking about things like music. There are songs that you listen to, songs that you hear that literally bring tears to your eyes. There are other songs that you listen to that somehow in that moment you can't even explain it. It feels like you are transported to a higher realm through listening to that song. You see, this is what I'm taking for granted in this message, and I think I can. I don't think this is controversial at all. We all believe in beauty. We all love beauty. We all seek beauty. Every single one of us. You know, here at the church, we got a four-level parkade. We have never, ever received a phone call of somebody saying, I'm looking to do a nice, long walk and just to enjoy the world today. Can I come and do laps of the parkade? Like, no one has ever called us about that. When we go for walks, we go for walks on Dallas Drive. We go to Goldstream Park. We go in the forest. We go beside the ocean. What does that tell you about what it means to be human? We love beauty, We don't just build houses to keep us warm and to uh, keep us dry. That's one purpose we build them. We build houses with lines, with angles, with shapes... Because we believe those lines and shapes and angles, they communicate a sense of beauty. We talk about curb appeal of a house. We don't just say, will it keep me dry? Will it keep me warm? No, we care about curb appeal. And then we paint the inside of the house and we decorate the inside of the house because as human beings, we want to live within something that is beautiful. Animals don't do that. Dogs don't care about interior design. They wreck your interior design. (laughs) Fish, don't stop swimming for 20 minutes to stop and just gaze at a sunset. And then there's one other little piece to it, and this is one of these things that we might resonate with it or you might not. I'm not sure. We all seek beauty, but there is a sense in which we're never fully satisfied even when we're experiencing it to its highest level. There's German philosophers and German poets. They have a word for this in German. And the word is zensucht. For those of you who are German, that's a hard word to translate into English. It kind of has the sense of a longing or a craving for something, but it's for something that you can't even identify. That's the sense of the word. And here's the thing. You don't experience zensucht when you're sad. We all have longings and cravings when we're sad You experience Zensucht when you are most happy, when you are most filled. You try to try to picture this as that moment when you're so happy, you actually experience kind of an ache. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a sweet ache. But if you even try to reflect on that, what that sweet, sweet ache is for a moment, you lose it. You can't, you can't seem to touch it. You can't seem to identify it. You only experience it, and it's fleeting, it's there, and then it's gone. Perhaps you experience it when you finish one of your favorite books or maybe one of your favorite movies and the whole thing is now done and there's such a sense of satisfaction, such a sense of happily ever after. And yet in that moment, there's kind of a sweet ache that goes with it, a longing that you're not even sure what it is. It's like there's something past the music. It's like there's something beyond the joy. It's like there's something that you're reaching for, you're longing for. It's a sweet ache for something more, and yet if you try to reflect on what that feeling is, you don't even really know what it is. Zensuked. The question then that I want us to ask this morning is this. What story makes sense, what story best makes sense of the fact that we love beauty, seek beauty, create beauty, and we long for a beauty that we cannot seem to find. So that's the first, that's the question of beauty, framing the whole thing now. Now I want to compare and contrast the two most common stories probably in our culture anyways. If it was in Iraq, I would do something different. But for our culture, I want to compare and contrast the secular story of beauty with the Christian one. So now, in our next point, let's just consider this, the secular story of beauty. And really what I'm asking here is, how does... The secular story of the universe, how does it make sense of everything we've just talked about? That as human beings, we love beauty, we want to create beauty, we long for beauty. How does it, or does it not, make sense of that? So the most common way probably the secular story goes is like this. So what we talked about last week, that there once upon a time there was nothing, there was no God, there's no spiritual realm, nothing. Then the universe exploded into existence during the Big Bang, or at the point of the Big Bang, and then of course over time, through a long process of evolution, life emerged onto the earth. So this story then, it follows, if this is the idea, if this is the story of the universe, it follows then that everything must and can be explained in material terms. In other words, the universe is only the physical stuff. There is no spiritual realm. There is no soul that you can explain these things with. There is only the material realm. So everything can and will eventually possibly be explained through material causes. So if we think now the question, how does the secular story explain beauty? Well, in the one sense, it very easily explains beauty But I also want to suggest to you there's another sense in which it doesn't seem to be able to answer. And that's what I want us to ponder on. First of all, how does it explain it? Well, it can explain things scientifically. It can explain the material causes. But it has troubles explaining things that don't always have a material cause. Let me give you an example. I remember talking with a young man. He was married. He was in his mid-20s. And uh, we were talking about the existence of God. We were talking about all these kind of spiritual type talk- topics. And he firmly believed, of course, that there is the material universe and that's all there ever was and all there ever will be. No God, no spiritual realm, anything like that. And so one of the questions I asked him is, how do you explain romantic love? As in the desires for somebody else. How do you explain that if there is no God? And to his credit, he was entirely consistent With his worldview. And so, what he said is at the end of the day, what love is, is really nothing more than chemical reactions within our bodies that send up uh, signals to our brains, kind of that are working in our brains that draw us to another person. And and really, if you want to explain it within evolutionary theory, it, it, it really is our long evolutionary history has made this to help us to perpetuate the human species. To which then the next question is Have you said that to your wife? And I'm, I'm poking fun at him, but I'm, try, I'm trying to make a point. So th- this is the point. Of course, I agree with you. I agree entirely with you. You can explain. There's no question there's chemicals going on. No question about it. No question there's brains going on. But the question I'm pondering is, is that all that romantic love is? Can it all be explained with material causes? So Valentine's, Valentine's Day is coming up, right? So men, young men, whatever age men you are, whether you're married, you got a girlfriend, you got a fiance, whatever it might be, there you are, you're going to take her out for a nice meal, and at some point in that night that the atmosphere's just right and you just look her in the eye and you say, "You are so beautiful." In that moment, do you simply mean the chemicals in my body are mixing in such a way <laughs> that the neurons in my brain are creating an impulse in me, drawing me to want to help perpetuate the human species with you. Is that what you mean? Now, (laughs) this is your pastor's tip for dating and marriage 101. Never say that. Never, ever. Never, ever. Now, of course, I'm, st- I'm still poking fun, but I am trying to make a, fo- a point, am I? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying science absolutely can explain it. The secular story absolutely makes sense of something like romantic love in this sense that there's no question that chemicals are going on. It's no question that there's the, there's the brain neurological things going on. Yes, we're perpetuating the human species. That is all absolutely true. But do we believe... At the end of the day, is there anything more going on, or is that actually the heart of it all? Is there something else happening? And just, I'm getting you just to ponder: when you say that to your wife, to your fiancee, your girlfriend, is there not something more going on than chemistry, biology, neural, physiological things happening? Some, something to ponder. This is. This is, these are hard questions. We're pondering together, right? So this is what I was getting this young man to ponder on. Or let's, let's do another example. Let's think about music. On one level, science teaches us that sound is the movement of molecules in the air that cause the tiny little ha- hairs in your ear to vibrate, which then signals up to your brain, and your brain interprets the little movements of your the hairs in your ears as sound. That's what sound actually is from a scientific standpoint. And that's absolutely true. So the secular story, as it makes sense of beauty, the beauty of music, it makes good sense of this because it can explain exactly what sound is. But now here's the question for you. Is that all that music is? I mean, when you're listening to a song and it's moving you so deeply that literally tears are coming into your eyes. Or you're listening to a song where you, you feel transported into a higher realm. In that moment, do you believe that there is nothing more actually than a physiological reaction of the movement of the air in your ears? Is that all that's going on? Is that it? Or is there something more that is happening? And what of zensucht, the longing, the sweet ache? I think in the secular story the answer would be, well, it's, it's nothing more than some sort of biological chemical reaction that's happening within you, uh, but it's, not, it's nothing higher than that. Can't explain it maybe, but there's nothing more going on there. So to summarize then, we all find ourselves born as human beings in this gigantic universe. And one thing we know about ourselves as human beings is that we love beauty. We seek beauty. We want to make beauty. It's just something we're absolutely obsessed with. We long to experience. So what story makes the best sense of the fact that we all long for beauty, love beauty, and try to strive for a beauty that we can't seem to find? And so far, what I'm saying with the secular story, my interpretation, I'd love to hear yours on it if you want to dialogue with me on it, I think it makes partial sense of our love for beauty because it can explain scientifically from a material standpoint what's going on in our bodies in our minds that we do love beauty but I would press the question to say I just don't feel like it can truly truly make sense of beauty like when you say you're so beautiful or you listen to music that brings tears to your eyes it just doesn't feel right within the universe to say these things are all reduced just down to some material cause. So we said this story does make sense, some of the mechanics of it, but it doesn't seem to answer the joy, the wonder, and the awe that we often feel. It feels like there's something more. So you ponder on that. You ponder on the secular story and how it does or does not make sense of beauty. Now let's compare And let's contrast that in the second place with the Christian story. And I really should say the Judeo-Christian story. The the Old Testament, the New Testament, all together, I'll just call it the Christian story of beauty. And we're still asking the same question now. Now we're asking, how does the Judeo-Christian story make sense of the fact that we love beauty, seek beauty, create beauty, and long for a beauty that we cannot seem to fully find in this world? And what I want to do now, of course, is go back to Genesis chapter 1 through to chapter 2 and verse 3. Really, that's, we just call that Genesis 1. It's all the one block of passage. But here's what I want to say right up front, especially if you've been part of a church your whole life, kind of like me or something like that. I want to simply say this as soon as we come to Genesis 1. Almost all of us don't really read Genesis 1 the way we are supposed to. In fact, we almost all miss it. I have missed it for so many years I'm going to submit to you that you missed it as well, and here's why. As soon as you might have heard, Barton's preaching on Genesis 1 this morning. When you heard Genesis 1 was being read for us, you knew, oh, he's coming up. Immediately what happens because of our background is we get immediately sidetracked onto tons of controversial questions like, are the days in Genesis 1 literal 24-hour periods or are they longer? How old is the earth? Does Genesis 1 fit with evolutionary theory? And most importantly, especially to me as a child, where do the dinosaurs fit into it all? So for many years, and don't get me wrong, these are questions that can and should be asked, but here is what I have observed my entire life, I've observed it in myself, and I've observed it in every single church I've been a part of, we always miss the big point. We get so involved in the controversial questions, we miss at the end of the day what Genesis 1 is meant to do for us and meant to do in us. This chapter is not just meant to teach us that God exists and that he created everything. Oh, yes, that is definitely a big point, the big point of it. But more than that, by the time you are done reading this chapter or listening to it this morning... You are meant to fall on your face in absolute worship to God, not just because he's powerful and he created all things, but because he has filled this world as a home for you and I with so much beauty, with so much glory, that you're meant to come to the end of Genesis 1 and just go, wow, you sing with Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. No one can imitate that voice, so I won't even try. If you don't come to the end of Genesis chapter 1 and Louis Armstrong's the soundtrack in the back of your brain, you've gotten sidetracked. You've gone off the wrong path. You are meant to always end at that point. That is the point of Genesis 1, to come to worship in words like, what a wonderful world. So I want this morning to try to help us to recapture a bit of that because I just want to show you in Genesis 1 that this is really the larger point of it. In fact, I want to begin even strictly from a literary perspective. In simply the way that Genesis 1, the author crafted it, it is by any standards. You read any scholars, any literary people who've really looked at Genesis 1, they will say, Genesis 1 is one of the greatest literary works in the history of the world. The way that it's shaped. And maybe you've never even seen these things before. But the way that it is written, aside from what it actually says. So, was Genesis 1 written in English? Don't, no, please don't answer aloud in case you give the wrong answer. No, it was not written in English. It was written in, it was written in Hebrew. So the, in the original Hebrew in which it was written, the entire chapter was written around the number 7. The number 7 dominates The chapter, and if you know anything about the Bible, you know that the number seven is meant, it's a symbol, and it's a symbol that represents perfection and harmony and everything kind of going together. So maybe you've never seen this before, but just from a literary standpoint, check this out. Genesis chapter one and verse one, exactly seven words is the way the Bible begins. The second verse has exactly 14 words in the Hebrew, so seven times two. I did the math for you in case any of you have troubles. The word God in Genesis 1, comes up 35 times, which is seven times five. Earth and heaven both appear exactly 21 times, seven times three. The phrase, it was so, appears seven times, and it was good seven times. This chapter has been crafted. It has been written like a great poet, like a great narrator, a great author writes something. And and we say Shakespeare is so incredible in the way he writes Genesis 1 is not like a textbook meant to just communicate data. It is a literary masterpiece. It's like a work of art that is meant to point to the great artist who has filled his world with beauty. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back it up. Let's develop the Christian story of beauty from Genesis chapter 1. And it begins in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Christian story, of course, begins here by declaring that God exists and that he created everything. But that doesn't tell us much about beauty yet, does it? What what that tells us, of course, is that God is very powerful. No question about that. But so far, it's not actually telling us really anything about beauty. I mean, maybe, if you're just just at verse 1, maybe the God who created the universe is more just a God who's concerned about what is useful and what is practical. But he's not actually kind of really concerned about the beautiful or the attractive. Well, let's read on and find out what kind of God he is. We come to verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." So, now here's just a little way to make sure you're reading Genesis 1 correctly. Genesis 1 is not really about the universe at all. Oh, yes, God created the universe, that's the heavens and the earth, that's in that phrase. And there's a little phrase later on, and the stars, just a little throwaway comment, and the stars He created. But what Genesis 1 is concerned about is to zoom in on the earth itself, and then specifically humanity. It's like the camera zooms in from the whole universe down to just the earth, and now we're gonna talk about the earth. And so far now in Genesis 1 verse 2, we find that the earth is in a state that cannot support life. This phrase, without form, that's found many places elsewhere in the Old Testament. It refers to a landscape that is inhospitable and dangerous. The word void isn't saying there was nothing there. In fact, it means the earth was there, but it means that the earth was empty of life. There's no life on the earth. So the picture here is of an earth covered in water, but there's no life. It's uninhabitable. Yet there's also a sense of anticipation, for we read that God's Spirit hovers like a bird over the waters, is creating anticipation something is going to happen. And then we read that God, like a great sculptor, rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work on the raw materials of the earth and wants to shape it and form it from something uninhabitable to something that is habitable, from something that cannot support life to something that is filled with life. And what we see in Genesis 1 is that this chapter is really divided into two parts. First of all, God forms the earth. He forms it, he shapes it, so that it can support life. And then secondly, he fills that which has now been formed with life. He forms it, and he fills it. So here's what we could, you can make it look like if you want to put it with the days. So days 1 to 3, God takes that which is lacking form, lacking shape, and he forms it. And then in days 4 to 6, once the earth is now capable of supporting life, he fills the earth with life. Or, as one of my seminary professors, Daryl Johnson, would put it, you could say it like this In days one to three, it's like God built the house. And like in days four to six, it's like God furnished the house. So, that's an easy way to kind of divide the way that this chapter is laid out. So, here's the summary then of the days. In day one, God creates light. In day two, he creates the sky. In day three, God's kind of like a sculptor as he raises up the dry land and enables the dry land to produce vegetation. So all these are acts of forming, of shaping, of getting something ready, building the house, if you will. Then, on days four to six... God fills that which he has formed. So notice that God on day four goes back to the work of day one, creates the lights, the sun and the moon. The day two makes, or day five makes this really obvious. He had shaped the skies and the seas, now he fills it with birds and with fish. Day six, he fills, he takes, build, uh, creates animals and humans because he's already formed the dry land and the vegetation. Now we're starting to see what kind of God he is. Now we can sit back and we go, okay, is he just the kind of God who wants to create a world that is useful and practical? Oh, he's that. Of course the world is useful. Of course it's practical. But you can't read this and go walk out into the world without immediately saying to yourself, God goes far beyond this. He creates a world that for us that is so attractive, that is so beautiful, when it comes to filling the world with beauty, we could say that God is actually over the top about this, that God is excessive. You could, you could use that word, like really, really excessive. So for instance, day, back on day five, he creates the fish, the fish of the sea, right? Well, he could have just created, you know one species of fish, maybe like five, that would even five or 10, that would be pretty great. From what we count so far, and we don't even really know, we're up to about 20,000 species of fish at this point. I mean, we've got terrifying sharks that come toward us. We run away from these sharks. Let's get the picture of the shark. There we go. There's the shark. Terrifying sharks we've got. we got little minnows like this that get eaten by and Then we got like the puffer fish. That's just great. <laughs> God had a lot of fun with that one. You think about this, God could have made all of the fish black and white, but he didn't. He made the fish to be filled with colors like this one, or like that one, or like that one. Could have made five different species, could have made them all just black and white, but that is not what he did. There is so much beauty in the fish of the sea that we create aquariums and even bring them into our houses so we can just look at how beautiful these fish are. And if we ever travel to tropical places, we pay hundreds of dollars to go snorkeling so we can fit, uh, swim with these fish and behold this kind of beauty. And then we talk about it the rest of our lives. Genesis 1 is saying, Yes, God exists. Yes, God is powerful. But even more than that, God is a God of beauty. And he pours out that beauty into everything that he creates. And all that comes up in another phrase that just gets repeated over and over again in Genesis chapter 1. And it is the phrase, it was good. So when God finishes his work every day, he steps back from what he's created. And he's kind of like looking over what he's he's made that day. And does he say... that job's done. That's not what he does. No, he says, and we read, and God saw that it was good. It was good. There's a delight to it. Like an artist who steps back from his or her work and just smiles in enjoyment about what has been painted on the canvas today, God looks at it and he says, wow, that's good. He makes a tiger and he just goes, man, the way that tiger just is powerful, and yet so fast, and yet so agile, and yet so elegant, oh, that's good. That is so good. He's just delighting in it. You know, there's a great little place in the book of Job where it describes the angels who the Bible says God created before he created the heavens and the earth, and they're, described, they're called the sons of God. The angels are referred to as the sons of God. And there's this, this great little verse that happens where it's like God says to all the angels watching, hey, watch this. And then he sculpts out the Rocky Mountains or something like that. And we read these words in Job 38, verse 7. It says, All the sons of God shouted for joy. A picture of creation at creation. They, they're just like, Oh, yeah, good one. Woo! I mean, they're just like standing up. The elephant, look at that one, it's hilarious. I mean, it's so majestic and yet so funny. I mean, the angels are just going nuts. I mean, what did they think when he created a giraffe or an ostrich? It's like, this is is comical, it's amazing, it's great. All the sons of God shouted for joy. So the end result of Genesis chapter one is that God creates a home for humanity that not only can sustain and support life, oh yes, it does, so easy. Did you even have to think about your last breath? It was just there for you. So easy to live. But one that is crammed full of beauty. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Every part of it, and now in our modern day, we know Earth is a rare jewel in our galaxy and in our universe. And don't you have moments where all this kind of comes home to you where you're just like, this Earth is incredible? Do you ever? You've, we've all got these moments, right? I mean, I could list thousands of my own moments. I was just thinking of one where this was really brought home to me in a fresh and a powerful way. It's when I watched the movie Gravity. Have you seen that movie? It's got a little bit older now, maybe five or six years or something. It stars Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, uh, won seven Academy Awards. And basically the story is they're up on the space station above the earth, and uh, something really goes wrong. Debris hits their station, and From that moment on, the rest of the movie is absolutely terrifying as they're just trying to survive and somehow get back to the earth. And it's very powerful because as you're watching it, it's like you hold your breath for the entire movie. And you have this sense the entire time that they are this close from death. Air is running out. There's no food. There's no water. Time is ticking on all of these kind of things. Everything, absolutely everything about space is there to kill you. Not only that, it's just blackness, blackness and blackness. Nothing is about life. Everything is about death. You're watching this for two hours until in the final scene, sorry, spoiler alert, it's been out for five years. If you haven't seen it, too bad for you. Spoiler alert, Sandra Bullock's escape pod crashes down to the earth into the ocean. And so now you're under the ocean, and it's still black. And so they do this perfect thing. It's still black. She comes out of her escape pod. She swims up to the surface. It's getting a little bit lighter. And all of a sudden, she bursts out through the surface. And for the first time in two hours, there's color real color. In the background are these green hills. She breathes deeply. And you just have this sense in that moment, because everything has been about air in this movie, how they need air and they got to get air. And now she's just breathing so easily. A little insect flies around her head. Life right there. And then she begins to swim towards the shore, and it's shallow, and there's tufts of green grass or reeds kind of sticking out everywhere. And then she's just laying on the beach, catching her breath, And as she lays there, she grabs a handful of sand, (coughs) excuse me, and she just pulls it close to her face and she chuckles to herself. And then she stands up. The music all comes to a giant crescendo and she stands looking out over the earth and all the beauty. She puts her hands out wide in a sense of absolute awe and thanksgiving to be back on planet earth. And then the movie ends. And it's just like 30 seconds or a minute at the end. That's all you get. But the two hours of being in space of death everywhere, contrasted with that last little minute, I just came away from that going, What a wonderful world. What a jewel. What a home. That is the point of Genesis 1 that God has made a home for humanity. God has crammed it full of beauty. So let's pull all this together now and let's add just a final few pieces. How does the Christian story make sense of the fact that we love beauty, seek beauty, create beauty, and long for a beauty that we cannot seem to find? Well, the Christian story says that beauty exists because God exists. And God created a world filled with beauty. Genesis 1, furthermore, shows us that the reason why we love beauty so much. We love beauty so much, the Bible says, because we were created to be like our maker. So as we're going to look at next week and the following week, Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. We are like our creator. We reflect our creator. So listen, what the Bible story says is, the reason why you love beauty so much is because you are like God who loves beauty so much. The reason why you love to make beautiful things, many of you are artists, the reason why you love to make beautiful things is because you are like the great artist, your creator. The reason why you experience delight and joy in beauty is because you are like your creator who takes great joy and delight in beauty. So that sense that there is something greater than us, what the Bible is giving us an answer to this, this, is, this brings us back to that idea of zensucht, that we have this, this ache even in our happiest moments, an ache for something more. What is it? The Christian story says that ache that you feel, that thing that you can't quite identify, that sweet ache for something even more beautiful than the greatest beauty you've ever experienced in this world, that ache is an ache for God himself. It's an ache to behold the source of all beauty because all the beautiful things in this world according to the Christian story are pointers to a higher beauty. They are all meant to point you to the source of all beauty, which is God himself. So we quoted last week, I'll quote it again this week from Augustine from the 4th century because it captures it when he says our hearts are restless. They're restless we want a beauty until they find their rest in you. So the Genesis story then will go on to show us why we have this restless longing. Why do we have so much restlessness in us? The Genesis story is going to go on. We'll see this in a few weeks to say that we have it because we have all, in one way or another, rejected our Creator. And we have tried to find our soul satisfaction in the created order, in the beauty of this world. And it was meant for us to find it in, but not in, it, in its entirety, So that's why Romans 1 says that we exchange the glory of our creator. We exchange the source of all beauty for the beautiful things that this creator has created. And we serve and we worship the created things rather than the creator. And the reason we can't find that satisfaction that we're all looking for is because the beautiful things of this world were never meant to fully satisfy us. They're meant to satisfy us, but not fully satisfy us. That's because ultimate beauty is not to be found in the art. Ultimate beauty is not to be found in the forest. Ultimate beauty is not found in the song. All of these things, here's the Christian story of this, all of these things, think of them like the rays of the sun. The rays of the sun bring warmth and light, but they are not the sun itself. All of the beautiful things of this world, you're meant to allow your mind and your soul to travel up the beam, up the ray, to the source of all beauty, which is your creator himself. And yet, we've all turned our backs on our creator. We have not worshipped him, loved him, or thanked him as we ought to. So the question then, as we're going to see in a few weeks, what will God do with these image bearers that he has made who are supposed to reflect him, who turn their backs on him and worship and serve the created order rather than the creator? What will God do about all of this? And to our utter amazement, the Christian story goes on to say that God does not reject us, though we have rejected him. Rather, our creator has done everything to bring us back to himself. And how does he do this? This is the story of the Bible, that the beautiful one laid aside his beauty in order to bring us back to himself that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, left the glory that he had with his Father and took upon himself a human nature, became a man, and came to dwell among us. And when he became a man, he did not come in all his beauty and glory. He laid it aside in order to win us. And that's why we get these famous words in Isaiah chapter 53 which say this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should, desire him. He wasn't a supermodel. He wasn't the best looking guy around at all. No, he laid aside his beauty in order to come to us. And when beauty personified came to our planet, how did we receive him? Did we marvel at him and worship him? No, as Isaiah 53 continues, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like a person that we hide our faces from because we don't want to look at them. Maybe they're being tortured, their their whole form has been defaced. No, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why would the eternal Son of God lay aside his beauty and come in the form of a man with no beauty or majesty to attract us to him and be despised by us? Why would he do this? to free us from the ugliness of our own sin. That Jesus came in order to take the ugliness of our sin upon himself upon the cross in order that anyone, anyone who comes to him might have the ugliness of their sin washed away and might be reformed into the beautiful person that God has always created us, meant us to be, and will shape us to one day fully be. And then to our total amazement, the Christian story of beauty ends with God fulfilling our deepest longings for beauty. So Revelation chapter 21 says that one day when Christ returns, God's going to rid his creation of all that is evil, all that is ugly. And he's going to take this earth which he's created for our home and he's going to renew it so that it'll become like a new earth. And then heaven, which is God's home, is going to come down and merge with earth so that heaven and earth are joined and we will dwell with our creator forever. You know, my kids love to ask me, what's it going to be like, Dad? What is this new heavens, what is this new earth going to be like? The Bible doesn't tell us much about what it's going to be like, but here's how I always answer the question. I basically answer it by saying, you know what? We don't really know, but here's what we do know. This earth that God created for us originally is Absolutely incredible. And even in its fallen state, it is so filled with beauty and we enjoy it so much. So the future new heavens and new earth, here's what we do know. It can't be less than this. And it will be more than this. So what if, I don't know, what's your favorite color? Mine is probably the greens of the West Coast. All the greens, from the moss to the trees, Goldstream Park, that kind of green. Just for me, it just does it. The blues of the ocean. I would live in Alberta for seven years. It was exile. <laughs> Be- because there's nothing green. It's just brown all the time. I love, love you Albertans. I'm one of you. I'm one of you. But my soul ached for the green. It ached for the ocean. It ached for the blue skies. Well, the, Alberta's got the blue skies. But the blue skies with the green in the background climbing up Mount Finlayson or looking out over the valleys or wherever you're at. What if in the new creation, all those greens, God creates 50 new colors of which this green is nothing more than black? What if in the new creation, (coughs) excuse me, we sing songs and we listen to music that makes the best music of this world, whatever you think is the greatest song and music of all time, it makes it sound like those Grade four kids playing hot cross buns on the recorder. (laughs) What will music sound like? What will colors look like? We don't know. I don't know. But I do know that it will be a new heavens and a new earth. That's what God has promised. And then above all those things, on that day, the best five words in the entire Bible, in my opinion, will come true. For in Revelation 22, we read that all the wrongs will be made right, the new heavens and the new earth will come. And then Revelation 22 and verse 5 simply says this We will see his face. We will see his face. God is all beauty, all the beauty of this world. Is just something that he made. It's not even him. All beauty points back to him, and all his people will look upon his face. We will look upon the beauty, the beauty of all beauties, the source of all beauty, the definition of beauty. And I'll tell you, in this life, I have looked upon many things that are beautiful that have just filled my heart with joy and with wonder that have left me awestruck. I've seen my bride walk down the aisle. I've wept tears of joy when my, I've seen my children, at various my four kids at various times in their lives, seen them as they've grown. I have stood next to the Grand Canyon in just absolute awestruck wonder, trying to possibly take in all of this beauty, and I cannot seem to get it into me. It's just so vast and so great. I've snorkeled with the tropical fish in the Great Barrier Reef of Australia. I've been and seen the great works of art in the Louvre and Paris. I've been in the great cathedrals of Europe. But all these things are just created beauty. They are all pointers. They are all the rays of the sun. And what I long for is a beauty that will never fade, a beauty that will fill my soul forever, not one that I see and I have to walk away from. And what the Bible is saying, the promise of the Bible is, for all who come to Christ, he will forgive the ugliness of your sin, make you right with your creator, and one day you will see his face. All your cravings for beauty, all your longings will finally one day be completely satisfied and fulfilled. We will see his face. So, what story do you think makes the best sense of the fact that we as human beings love beauty, seek beauty, make beauty, and long for a beauty that we can never seem to fully find in this world? I'll encourage you to reflect on that. And the invitation of the Christian story is to come to Jesus to get the ugliness of your sin removed, washed, and cleansed. And the promise of the Christian story is that whoever does this, God will begin to form, reform into the person you were always meant to be. And that one day, you will see his face and all your longings will be completely fulfilled. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Let's pray. Father, we, yeah, we don't even know where to begin to give You praise for the beauty of this world. We could go on for hours of the things that we love, that we delight in. They are all gifts of You to us, for You have made this our home to live on. And we are so grateful. And so maybe, Lord, all we can do right now is to just say thank you and to just praise you for what an incredible world you have given us, even in its fallen state. It is a perfect home for us. We praise you for the colors, for the mountains, for the waters, for our friends, for our family, our spouses, all these things that fill our hearts with joy and with wonder. And Father, thank you most of all for sending your Son into this world. Jesus, thank you for laying aside your beauty, taking on that human flesh in order to restore us and to bring us back to God who is all beauty. We give you the praise this morning. Help us to follow you more closely this week. Help us to live for you, our Creator, the one who has given us so many good gifts. Enable us to do that, we pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.